Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile with me, Megan Cornwell. This is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and ministry. Today on the show, I'm talking to Iona Rossley. Iona has represented Great Britain in speed skiing and holds the title of Ladies British Overseas Champion and New Zealand Ladies Champion. She successfully represented Ireland in the World Equestrian Games and the World Championships. She now lives in Australia with her husband, Jeff, where she's a lay minister in the Anglican Church. Her new book, Racing on Empty, tells the story of her remarkable journey to faith. Iona, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you, Megan. And hello and greetings from Australia. (laughs) (laughs) Iona, on the profile, we like to start by asking our guests about their upbringing. So can you just talk me through where you grew up, uh, what life was like and whether you were born into a Christian family? Okay, I was... I'm the eldest of four girls. Um, my poor father was desperate for a boy, and he never had a he never had a son, but he kept trying. Um, my parents were Catholic, so we were brought up into a fairly strict Catholic upbringing. Um, we it, it was difficult. Our, my father was very um, military in his style for bringing children up, so we were. I was very scared of him, so I was very timid and very shy, and I ended up having a stutter. Um, and bless him, he, he passed away a year and a half ago, but he always apologizes for how he brought us up. But in a way, we were, it was a disciplined life when we were young. Um, we weren't allowed to speak until we were spoken to. Manners were critical at the dinner table. It was a very... Um, it was a different life, um, one that, um, you know, my three younger sisters, we just towed the line. We just thought that's the way it should be. Um, my mum's very compassionate and loving. And, you know, we were a family, just a normal family that loved our pets and whatever. And it just, you know, went on and on and on. And then I got sent to boarding school when I was 11. So it was my first time away from my sisters um, and, my, and my parents. Um, unfortunately, my parents were just about to get divorced just as I was leaving to go to convent school. And I suppose, but when I got to the school, it was fairly traumatic because when you've got 300 girls, um, it can be fairly, it's a bit like walking into a lion's den when you're very shy. And um, I was really shy. Uh, so for the first six months were very difficult. I just felt like being ab- abandoned. Um, and you, went, you only went home every, well, probably every eight weeks. You went home for a week. Um, and then the home life was difficult then because of what was happening and with my parents. Um, so, but I 
what did happen is that I realized very quickly that I was good at sports. So I was 11 when I first got there. So I'd say when coming up to 12, I realized that I could do most sports from running to um, horse riding. The ski slope had just been built um, just near our home in Wales. And my, I sort of latched on to that as my identity. And that gave me the confidence that I needed. And, but unfortunately, I went from this very shy, timid person to a bit of a class bully, um, very arrogant. Um, yeah, it, it totally, it went the wrong way. There was nothing in between, really. Um, so my upbringing, um, was strict at home before I got to the boarding school. And then it just became, I became obsessed with um, my sports. So I was on the junior Welsh netball team. Um, I was running for the school. Um, I was the hockey captain. Um, so it, sports was starting to, to form me into the person that I am now, but obviously without God. The, the problem was with the Catholic school, um, the, the nuns were great. We had a great, had an amazing education, even though they did try and get rid of me on several occasions. <laughs> <laughs> my father, I think money speaks louder than words. And he always said, okay, I'll take care of the sisters. And they were like, oh, no, no, no. See, pound signs going out the window. I struggled in my academic um, work. Um, I got removed from maths. I got removed from French. I think I only had so many subjects left and my father was getting a little bit upset about it. Um, but yeah, I did, they did try and expel me on a number of occasions. Mm. Um, and it, it was just this rebellious, I think go, going from a very shy person to a really rebellious girl who I just felt that the only way through life was to battle everything. Um, and I love my sports. I love what I did. Um, I didn't, um, I struggled with the discipline within the convent school. But the main thing there was um, I didn't understand all the rituals and the traditions. We had to go to mass every morning. And um, for me, if God did exist, I didn't really believe he did. Um, he lived on a far distant planet. And he wasn't a God of love. He was a God of, he just judged. And I had, we weren't really taught that God was personal, um, that he really wanted to love us. He wanted to get to know us. That really wasn't there at all. So um, my favorite thing in, in church on Sunday, and I'm, I'm surprised they never really clocked onto this, the nuns, but I used to sit on the edge of the, the the pew in the middle of the aisle and I used to pretend to faint every time just to get out of church. <laughs> so I used to roll into the aisle and you could hear, oh, she's fainted again, pull her out. And that's how I got, that's how I used to get out of church. But I'll tell you one thing, God has a sense of humor because when I was mm, 16, 17, I maybe shouldn't have been in bars and pubs, but I started fainting for real, for no reason. I'd, so I'd be standing there, the next minute I'd be on the ground. 
And I did this for about a year to two years and then it stopped. But I look back on it thinking, hmm, <laughs> I think he was, I think he was having a, a laugh. Okay, so Faith was sort of in the background all the while and you were, as you say, gaining more of a sense of identity through the sports that you were engaging in. At what point did you start to get interested in skiing? Um, it was rather amazing, actually, because we lived in Wales. Actually, I was born just outside of London in Henley-on-Thames. And then we moved to Newport. And then we moved to Pontypool, which is um, South Wales. And they just built one of the um, first and one of the longest artificial ski slopes. And when I, my first year in boarding school, uh, the only thing I could think of when I got home was to go and do some skiing. So I started skiing and I just became obsessed with it. I think I'd been on a one week ski holiday when I was younger. So I arrived thinking at the ski slope, oh, do you know, I've done this. I went straight to the top, but didn't know what I was doing. I went straight to the top. I actually don't know how I got down, but I was determined that I needed to do this properly and I, I was loving it. So when I was, every time we had holidays or half term, I would be on the ski slope and I would literally, from when it opened in the morning until when it closed at night, I'd be there. And so how did you get from there to then becoming the Ladies British Overseas Champion? Yeah, that, it was a long journey. And if you'd asked me that I would have been doing what I, I was doing, I would have said, you're crazy, that will never happen. Um, believe it or not, Wales did have a ski team. <laughs> so I ended up on the, the Welsh ski team. Um, and I, did I do any, I actually didn't do any snow skiing. I, all my skiing was around Great Britain on artificial slopes, which actually is harder to ski on than real snow. So when I finished my O-levels, um, the nuns, told me they preferred if I didn't come back <laughs> to do my A-levels. So that's fine by me. I wasn't planning on coming back. And I was, um, I went into art college and I did a one year, a year of art and design and foundation course. And then I went to do a BA in fine art and I was halfway through, I was even halfway through, I was probably six months into the BA course and I realized I really don't want to do this. I, I really want to be able to ski. And it just so happened that a couple of my friends who used to ski with a couple of guys, they suggested, well, they suggested they were going, just going to jump on a plane and go to Switzerland, do their skiing exams. And if they passed, then they would have a job. And they said, well, why don't you come with us? And I thought, my parents would kill me. <laughs> but... Yes, I'll do it. So I walked out of art college. My mum was distraught. My father couldn't even speak to me. And by that time, I'd like dyed my hair pink. I was wearing leather jackets. I was, you know, I went from, you know, I went crazy when I left boarding school and going into art college was um, interesting. Um, so I just jumped on the plane. I went with um, a couple of friends who I'd known since I was 11. Um, and I got there and I remember standing on top of this slope with these examiners who were trying to see, gauge us how well we skied. And, and I thought, I've only spent one week on snow. <laughs> what am I doing? This is absolutely crazy. 
And I think that was the first time I was actually, I prayed to God, I think if there is a God out there, you're gonna to have to help me here because this is gonna this is gonna all end in disaster. But I found it really easy to ski on snow. I had no problem at all. I just absolutely loved it and I loved the teaching. We had like a two, three week course. Um, the only thing I couldn't I wasn't very good at was skiing off piste in deep powder. Obviously you don't get deep powder on a dry ski slope. Um, so yeah, I yeah, it was a bit of a risk. It was a big risk. And um, two, three weeks later, I was a member of the Laysan Swiss Ski School. And that's when I started teaching skiing. And I was only teaching the little ones um, because I obviously had to go through all the, the ski instructors' qualifications. And, but I loved it. I absolutely loved it. In my free time, I'd be skiing. But it was a fairly wild and woolly, um, you know, being a ski instructor... There's a lot of drinking, a lot of partying. Um, you're sort of put up on a pedestal because you're a ski instructor. So I was really living the life to the full. Um, but I was very focused on my skiing. It, you know, I could have two hours sleep, um, but I would still, you know, in my free time, I would ski. Um, and I just had this passion to be better and better. And... I eventually, um, I was offered a job as a chief ski instructor in a, a resort called Les Arc 2000, uh, which has a kilometer lance, which is the flying kilometer. And uh, it's a speed skiing track. So by that time, I think I'd been a ski instructor for, I don't know, four or five years. Um, and I was working for a, a very good company. Um, so I had, I don't know how many, oh, ski instructors. I probably had about 12 ski instructors working for me. And um, it was a British uh, ski instructor school, but within the French system. And Les Arcs was really interesting. I used to watch these speed skiers thinking they were absolutely nuts. And what on earth was the point of going straight down a hill at, 200 kilometers an hour and we saw some horrendous falls and I'd be going no <laughs> there's no way on this planet I would do that and it's actually really interesting when you watch when you listen to a speed skier you could it's like being on a uh, it's been like being at an airport because the the noise when they go past is almost like a plane and it shudders and I used to think oh, it's amazing it's amazing then one staff meeting, one of our bright sparks decided that it would be really good as ski instructors, since we're in Les Arc 2000, to have a go at speed skiing. And I was like, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> See, as ski instructors, we were allowed a quarter of the way up and they would lend you the, they, you, you had to hire helmets and skis are, skis are two meters long. And they're all very excited about this. And I was like, well, I have to do it because I'm chief ski instructor. I'm going to look like a real wimp. So I was like, okay, we'll do it. So we'd arranged at 10 o'clock on the Friday morning, Friday was our day off, um, that we go to the top and we meet at, well, it wasn't the top, halfway down, quarter of the way down. And I said, fine, we'll be there. So I got my helmet and skis and I, I get to the top and there's, 
no one there except this French guy um, with a walkie-talkie. And I, I just had this sudden feeling that I'd been set up. <laughs> there was no one around. I was like, you're absolutely kidding me. This can't be happening to me. So my best French, I said to the guy, was there any other way down <laughs> besides going down the track? And he's like, well, you can walk down with your, take your skis off and walk down the side. And I thought, everyone will see me. <laughs> everyone will see that I've whipped out. And I knew my lovely friends were all at the bottom and they looked like ants, you know, and I was like, this is not even funny. So the guy was proceeding to tell me the best way, position on the ski to get a really good time, a really good speed. And I was thinking, I just want to know how to get to the bottom without falling over. And he was demonstrating this egg position. You go down really low and, and then you'll get a really good speed. And, and I said, well, what happens? Oh, as he said, egg, I just saw like scrambled egg. I was like, and I started laughing. And I said, what happens if I fall? And he said, oh, no, 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 no. It's probably best you don't. <laughs> and I was like, fine, fine. Um, so uh, my legs were jelly, my heart, I can't really, I think you sort of shut down and, you know, I'm a real risk taker, but I'd seen some horrendous accidents on this track and I was like, nope. And I did pray to God, even though I don't know who God was at the time. <laughs> so anyway, you jump your skis around and it, it's a bit like jumping out of a block of flats, you know, before you know it, you're just going as far, it was the fastest I've ever been on a pair of skis. Um, I think my first run was 80, about 89 miles per hour. So, um, which is fast for me. And I was like, wow, I got to the bottom. And on the way down, I remember on the way down thinking, this is never gonna end, but it was strange sensation. I was loving it, but I was scared. I was loving it, but I was scared. And when I got to the bottom, there's a lip. And as you hit the lip, you, you slow down because you start to go up the hill. And all my friends, I don't know if you called them friends, all my the ski instructors were all standing there and they were laughing. And I actually couldn't breathe. I don't think I breathed on the way down. So I was trying to get my breath because I knew I wouldn't be able to talk. And I, I just waited and waited and I took my helmet off. And I was just like, wow. And they all looked at me like, you know, I said, okay, who's next? And they were like, no, <laughs> I'm not doing it. And I said, I think I'm going to go and do that again. And they all looked like, okay, that plan really failed. <laughs> it really backfired. So I started, it started as a prank, you know, and I would generally really do most sports and risky sports. But this, because I'd seen accidents and I'm just, no, that's not for me. Um, but it just takes you on another level. I don't know. It was just so amazing. Um, and I remember that night, my first night, just lying in bed, looking up, you know, looking up and thinking, I think I found something that I'm really going to love. And I had a really strong feeling I could do really well in this. Um, again, it's this identity thing about winning and, you know, which has always been with me since the age of 11, I think. Um, so that's how I got started into it. And it, it became a bit of a, a whirlwind. Um, 
it, everything moved very, very quickly because I, was, I wasn't in speed skiing for very long. It was over a couple of years. Um, but I really put everything into it. Um, you know, you, you're doing a couple of hours of weight training, you're running. It's a mental sport. So if you have one negative thought on the way down, you would probably more than likely um, muscle would, would tense up. And as you tense up, bang, you'll be on the ground. So it, it's a, I liked it because you had to be mentally really strong. So it's 50% the, the, the mental side and then 50% on the physical side. And, you know, you are your thoughts, you know, it's, it's, it was, it was, it helped me um, and moved me into a whole different area about how powerful our thoughts were. Um, so yeah, it was, it was fairly full on and it wasn't long before, it wasn't very long. I think it was six months into, um, my training and racing that I ended up getting sponsored by Smirnoff Vodka and Alfa Romeo cars. Um, I didn't like vodka, so I didn't, <laughs> didn't drink Smirnoff and I didn't drink and drive. Um, but it was just amazing. I was just like, wow. And then you got this publicity, it just, just, just blew up. I think overnight it was like suddenly I, I became, you know, the British up and coming fast, could, could be the fastest lady in the world. And, and I'm thinking, where on earth did all this come from? You know, it, it, it just bang, you know, one minute you're just plodding along and the next minute you're on the, you know, television, you're in the newspapers. And I think that sort of propels you even more to, it puts so much pressure on you. It puts huge amount of pressure on you. And, you know, being competitive anyway, plus the pressure on top, you just want, you know, to make sure that you do what you say you're going to do. So, um, yeah, the British, my first major race, I won on the, for the British overseas at ladies. Um, then I went to New Zealand. I, I won over there. And I did lots of other little races. And then, um, yeah, I think it was the second year when we were trying to qualify for the World Championships is when I had my major accident. Yeah, tell us about that, because that was quite life-changing, wasn't it? It was, because um, if you'd asked me what was the worst thing that could ever, ever happen to me, it would have been what happened. My whole life revolved around sports, not just the speed skiing. I was also teaching windsurfing and water skiing. I was competing in um, uh, windsurfing and skiing, triathlon type competitions. Um, my whole life had, you know, summer and winter was sports and competing to a fairly high level. Um, so when this accident happened, it, you know, it was just, unbelievable because it was just a string of things. I remember waking up in the morning and I'd lost my voice and I thought it was strange. I've never lost my voice before, even though I know I talk a lot. But, um, and then my technician who looks after my ski bindings, he got flu and he couldn't come and adjust my bindings. And I was probably a bit flippant about this and I thought, oh, they'll be fine. They don't need to be tested. And that's what holds your boot onto the ski. So probably the most important part 
especially when you're traveling at 160 kilometers an hour. Um, so I think it was my second, was doing well, it was my second run and we were way, way up high. And I, I was, it was difficult because I couldn't talk to anybody because I lost my voice. So I was trying to do sign language and I felt a little bit unease about that, but I was like, no, you know, I just loved what I did and the adrenaline just keeps you going. And I was so excited. Um, but I think it's that difference. It's the excitement, but also scary part. It's, a, you know, I love taking that risk and coming out on the other side. So when I jump my skis around, you know, it is like jumping out of a block of flats and you hydrofoil. So you're actually not even touching the snow. And all I remember is looking down and seeing one ski had just come off. So my right ski had gone. I'm traveling on one leg at, I don't know what speed, over 100 kilometers, whatever, an hour. And I did the total wrong thing. Instead of just relaxing and falling, I actually put my right heel down and I must have been traveling at 100 plus, I don't know what, 140, 150. And it shattered my whole leg from the heel all the way up my leg. Then I fell for a kilometer and I went through the speed trap at about 160 kilometers an hour. I think I still hold the title for the fastest lady on my bottom, <laughs> which is not a title I really want to hold. But on the way down, I just immediately when it was happening, I, it, it, it's almost like being in a, in a tumble dryer or washing machine, but in slow motion. And it's very weird because if you were watching it on camera, bang, it's finished in a couple of seconds because everything happened so fast, but not for me. It just, everything went really, really slow. And I just thought, this is it, I'm dead, finished. Um, because I knew where I fell, which is way up, that a couple of people, guys who'd fallen before, had, had not made it. And as I was falling, I, first of all, I thought about my dog, who was going to look after Toby. <laughs> and I just, the other strange thing, strange at the time, was I just felt the hand of God over me falling down and I just had a sense of peace at the same time. I have no idea where that came from and I didn't understand it, but I just thought, okay, this is, I'm finished, gone. When I did stop um, sliding, um, I remember vaguely just uh, looking, sitting up, looking at my leg and then seeing there wasn't a lot left of it. And then just collapsing and probably into like a half a coma. I don't know, I was out cold for a long time. The next thing I remember was after the operation, which was oh, eight hours where they put 28 screws and a metal plate into my right leg. Um, yeah. So that was something, obviously, that was not on my schedule <laughs> to have an accident like that. Well, that's the end of part one of my interview with Iona Rossley. Join us after the ads to hear more about her remarkable journey to faith. Do you want to stay informed on the best of what's happening in the UK church today? Premier Christianity magazine is for you. 
the UK's leading Christian magazine, is published every month and features interviews with Christian leaders, in-depth reporting, reviews, columnists, and loads more. And best of all, you can try it for free. Head to our website now to request the latest edition worth £5.95, completely free of charge. Visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Megan Cornwell. In part two, we hear more from Iona Rossley about some of her greatest life challenges as well as the steps that led her to Jesus. Let's rejoin my interview with Iona talking about the life-changing ski injury that shattered one of her legs. Listen in. And the doctors were amazing, absolutely amazing. Um, And they just said, you're lucky to be alive. And... Uh, I, I was actually overcome by the amount of um, people that came to see me. Being, a, being a, a, a professional athlete, you sometimes tend just to focus on yourself. And I didn't realize I had so many friends. So that really shocked me that people really cared. Um, and yes, if you had asked me what was the worst thing in the world that could happen, it was this. Um, and the doctors sort of gave me the icing on the cake when they told me that I would probably never be able to do any sports again. Um, and that I would always limp and that I would be due um, a major, major knee operation in a couple of years. Um, so that was a real shock. But the strange thing was I, I was very, very calm and very had this overwhelming sense of peace and I had no idea where it came from. Um, to this day, I still put that down to my mum, who is just an amazing woman of God. And she was, um, yeah, even when I was falling, I still think it was from her prayers. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a long, long road to recovery. And it was while I was um, recovering in Cyprus, my father lived in Cyprus, um, I met um, a physiotherapist who um, said, why don't I join them for a Bible study? And that was my first um, connection with Jesus as, re- as real, real Jesus, one that I was realized was living and breathing. And wow, I was like, Finally, Um, because all this time, I would say that when I was skiing, I knew deep down there's got to be more. I remember when I was seven, I used to wake up. It started when I was seven. I used to say, well, why, why, why why do we live? Why do we wake up, work? And, and then die. I mean, I, I was very analytical that there had to be more than like, there's got to be more. So I was, a, I'd say I, I'm, I've always been a seeker. So all the way through my skiing and windsurfing and everything else I did with sports, I, I tried everything. I would, Buddhism, Reiki, tarot cards, you name it, I've tried it because I knew that we, there had to be something else to make everything make sense. Um, it was like I was missing like the 
the center bit of a jigsaw puzzle. And I just, when this happened, and, I'm, and I met this Christian lady with a physiotherapy and I started going to the Bible studies, I really felt that, wow, this is it. This is, this is the Jesus that I've waited for for so long. Um, and it was so, so special. Um, but do you know, it is so sad because I, it was like I met him and then I got a bit worried. I used to get so worried that I was going to be turned into a, a Christian clone <laughs> and that it would just be, you know, do's and don'ts and that God would come in and strip me of my personality he would take away everything that was important to me. Um, and I was all this time while I was recovering, I was riding and I probably shouldn't have been because I ended up having some more operations on my leg. I was trying to get back to fitness, even though the doctor said I couldn't be able to do a sport again. I totally refused to believe that um, because I didn't know anything else. Iona for me was, you know, an athlete and that's what I was going to do. Um, so I, I managed to get fairly fit and I, I actually walked away from Jesus and all the connections I had in Cyprus, which was really sad, jumped on a plane, went back to England and bought myself a racehorse, as you do. <laughs> and then I tried to become a jockey. Well, that didn't work because I couldn't actually ride short enough because my knee kept locking. Um, and then, um, what happened then? And then I ended up going to, um, the Middle East. Well, I, I worked in television. Um, I made a video, um, uh, still was doing a lot of, um, uh, had lots of media coverage and the media was still is sort of really trying to, well, what sport are you going to do? What, you know, and that was sort of fueled me thinking, I've got to do something. I've got to do something. Um, so when I ended up in the Middle East, um, I got back into, uh, horse riding and I've ridden since I was, wow, three, four years old and riding has always been a hobby. So when I was skiing, the horse riding would be what I do when I have a day off. Um, but I love my horses and I was very competitive when I was little. Um, so this was really a, uh, when I, got, when I got to the Middle East, I got a show jumper. I started show jumping. Um, and then obviously it was, it's a roller coaster ride to the Irish team. So I was working on Formula One uh, with Damon Hill and Ayrton Senna. I was show jumping. I had an Irish trainer who was helping me. I got sponsored when I was show jumping as well, which was amazing. Were you experiencing problems with your injuries at this point or and just pushing through that? Or, or were you finding that your, your leg had healed and you weren't having too many problems? I was, I was still having problems with my legs, but I, I actually just... I, I think my attitude was that, you know, you just have to live with the pain. Um, and the the sports meant more than the pain. I could, I could cope with that. So, um, but the, the one thing I did forget to say was that on my, one of the reasons for being so adamant of trying to find out 
what the world was all about and why we were here is that, you know, what I found amazing was that when you, when you win a race, you can wake up the next morning and you feel even more emptier than you did the day before. Because I was expecting to feel very, very different. And, and, and I didn't. And I realized that, you know, you're on this roller coaster. You've put like years trying to get to that one competition. And then, okay, you win it. Then the next morning, well, why don't I feel different? Why doesn't it fill that void that I have inside? So the void seemed to be getting bigger and bigger the more successful I became. And I didn't understand that, but I think it's because you move further and further away from who you are. It's difficult because you become so obsessed. And I was really obsessed um, Mm. with my sport. So when I started getting involved in endurance racing, um, it wasn't easy on my leg. I had to work really hard to, uh, I did lots of Pilates and stretching and weight training and I, yeah, plus anti-inflammatories, which is probably not good for your kidneys or your liver. Uh, but I was determined to just, I don't know, just to, to win again. And I love competing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the road into endurance, um, was, was strange because I, I started playing polo and um, someone had a polo pony that was doing endurance racing and they, and they kept bucking everybody off. And they said, well, Iona, you do polo, so why don't you ride this little little horse in a, in a ladies' endurance race? And I was like, well, that's boring. But it was a 45-kilometer race and they galloped practically the whole way around. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. And that's how I, I got involved. I think I came in seventh on this little horse, which was rather amazing. And she nearly did try and get me off, but I didn't come off. Um, and I was on the uh, British um, team for a little bit. Uh, well, not the British team, the British squad over in um, Dubai. And then um, my mum is part Irish and, or not, Irish I'm part Irish she's Irish and I was offered a place on the Irish equestrian team for endurance and that sort of set me up for um yeah myself and Jeff my husband then we were just full on with the horses I think we ended up with at one point we had 27 horses Mm. um so it was fairly full on Iona, tell me about some of the other challenges that you face in life. So at one point you were diagnosed with cancer. That's right. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that came, that was, um, I, I got married when I was in Bahrain um, to um, a lovely guy, but it was the wrong thing to do. We probably shouldn't have got married. So within three years, it all come to a grinding halt. And we both had now moved into Dubai together, but then we divorced. And it was just after the divorce um, that I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And I was, it, it was a bit of a whirlwind. It just happened so quickly. Um, I've, my father, bless him, he um, paid for everything. So we, I got flown back to um, London 
and had this op uh, the Royal Free Hospital in London who were just absolutely amazing people. Um, and yeah, I was in there for six weeks and came out the other end fine, which was an absolute amazing. Um, but even in that time, you know, my mum, my parents were, were there, you know, they went together, they were, they, they were always there to support me. Um, I'm, I'm quite tenacious when things go pear-shaped. I don't get too, I don't know, I don't know, it's from my father's side. I just really believe it's going to work out. Um, and I just refused to believe I was going to die. I don't even think for one moment I thought about it. Um, the sad thing was when I met Jeff, my husband now, we've been married 20 years. Um, there was a point where I thought, oh, I would love to have kids. But obviously after the cancer and having a lot of my innards, <laughs> if that's the right word, removed, then that wasn't going to happen. So that was just one of many challenges. Um, that I've had, especially about hospitals and illnesses. My mm -hmm. husband always says that we should have a, always get a house near a doctor's surgery or a hospital, just in case, because <laughs> I spend a lot of my time in there. <laughs> mm. I thought it was funny in the, uh, in the pictures in, in your book, Racing on Empty, several of them, you know, have you with a, with a cast on or a, or a sling around your arm. Yeah. I think what, what it is when, when I pray to God now, I always say to him, we need to do this. I need to do that. And, and I said, can we, can we do this without a visit to the hospital? <laughs> because I always say, I know I'm going the wrong way. You need to help me. I need to stop. I don't know how to do it. And I said, but no hospital visits, please. <laughs> so, doesn't always work, but anyway. So Iona, after you recovered from your cancer, uh, you start, You did start to get a bit more serious about your faith, didn't you? Tell me about that time in your life. Yeah, so um, I started re back reading the Bible when I was in Dubai. And it was interesting because it was at the same time where we were also deciding whether we, we leave um, Dubai with the horses and move to France. And um, that was an absolute godsend because when we moved, we had 19 horses, based ourselves in France, and I was introduced by the local mayor to a Christian couple who were brethren. I mean, they were lovely. They knew the Bible inside out. They're just so amazing people. And they lived and breathed Jesus. And mm. I was like blown away. I mean, they also had horses, so we, you know, we had the, 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 the bridge of horses and, you know, animals and dogs and cats and everything else. And they sort of took me under their wing. And Jeff was still working in the Middle East. So I was competing full on. Every weekend I'd be uh, racing on the Irish team um, somewhere around the world, whether it's Portugal, Germany, Italy, Ireland or whatever. So it was fairly full on, but in the weekdays, you know, in the evenings, I spent a lot of time with Terry and Sylvie and it was so fascinating. They let me books um, they let me cassettes. That's when they used to have cassettes in those days. Um, and I did the alpha course and I did an alpha express course in their home. And I was, if you'd asked me if I was a Christian, then I would have said yes. Mm -hmm. um, so for two years, I sort of, you know, 
went down this track thinking this is great. But I kept praying to God saying, I think there's more. I think I'm missing something and I can't quite work out what it was, but I didn't realize that I was the problem. Um, because I, was, I had done the World Equestrian Games, the World Championships, the European Championships, I've been probably the, in the top three Irish riders uh, for endurance over a oh, five-year, six-year period. And I hadn't realized that I was, I was so obsessed still with my sports. Um, you know, and I was still, I was studying the Bible. I was praying. If you'd asked me about Jesus, I said, he's the most important thing in my life. But God had to step in and show me that I was wrong there, that, that he was only second, maybe even third. And it all happened when I was trying to qualify for the World Equestrian Games in America. And I had to qualify in a race in Portugal, which was very easy. I had to do 160 kilometers on one of my best horses. And uh, I didn't think anything of it. I thought, well, that's easy. You know, I've always been chosen as one of the six to represent Ireland in all the big competitions. And um, the day before the race, my horse ended up having a, like an epileptic fit and became very, very ill. Um, and I blame God for this, which meant obviously I couldn't race, which means I didn't qualify. It means I couldn't go to the World Equestrian Games. But anyone who's competitive will probably understand this because I'd spent a year to two years just focusing on getting this horse ready for this race. It, this was a disaster. This was more than a disaster. I just absolutely, totally lost the plot. And I really felt God had just walked away from me. I felt he'd just abandoned and left me. And I couldn't understand because he knew how important this was for me. And I remember coming home after... We had to wait a while because Bizu was so sick, but thankfully, and she's still alive, which is amazing. Um, we got home and Terry and Sylvia were on my doorstep and they said, you know, come on, let's talk, let's pray. I said, I don't want to pray and I don't want to talk. Um, anyway, we, we had dinner, we had some wine, <laughs> we, we talked and I just, I couldn't pray. I couldn't, I couldn't speak to God. I didn't want to. Um, I felt like I'd, it's weird. It felt like someone had died in the family. And I remember the next morning, um, I just felt so depressed. I felt like I'd been ripped open and my insides were torn apart. And I remember walking down into the kitchen and I saw my Bible and I saw my little do list, which I have every time I, you know, every day I don't do anything without my do list. And then I had the most amazing experience. It was like God walked into the kitchen. And there was this overwhelming sense of love that surrounded me. And I realized Jesus had never left me. I had left him. I just couldn't let go of my identity with my sports. And even though I'd spent two, three years of, getting to know Jesus, I had never let go of my life. I'd never, and 
and I hadn't realized until this had happened. And I dropped to my knees and I cried and there were tears of joy because when I had this real realization that I could let go, I had this amazing sense of freedom. And I did, I said, I just don't want to, I don't want to live this life the way I've been living it. I don't want to live this life without you being in control. Mm. I don't want to control my life and I want to let go. I don't. And as I said that, I felt the weight and the pressure and the burden of carrying so much around on my shoulders was suddenly, poof, it's gone. <laughs> and I felt the chains around my wrists and my ankle. It was just like I was turned inside out and upside down in a split second. And it was just the most amazing sense of love and freedom and peace. And I realized I didn't really care anymore what people thought about me, if I won, if I didn't. I thought it doesn't matter anymore. The only thing that mattered was to stay focused on Jesus. Mm. And I realized it, it, that Jesus wanted me to be competitive. That's fine, but I'd be competitive for him and put him first. And it was just the most amazing, overwhelming experience. And it did, it changed me in a split second. Do you ever wonder how different your life would have been if you'd surrendered it to Jesus earlier? Do you have any regrets about that? Whoa, Um, probably not, because I think someone's story, um, I think my story will help a lot of people. And I think, well, if, if I became a Christian when I was 12, would I have done all this stuff? I, I don't know. I mean, that, you know, I, I'm one of these people, I've, I was, I've been asked this question before once, and it really made me think, would I go back to a very early age and become, a, a, you know, a follower of Jesus I wouldn't be who I am now I would be a very very different person mm. um, and I just really feel that what God has done in my life is I, I just I think I, I don't know I can't I can't really answer that I, I think I'm I'm just so blessed that that happened, <laughs> that he did step in and stop me. Um, because I think there are so many people who, I, I thought I was a Christian. I really believed I was. And he, he stepped in and showed me that the importance of having a personal relationship with Jesus is, is okay, having a relationship, but you've also got to let go of your life for him to actually step in. And to, to be able to, I think I was also really worried about this clone business that you've become a Christian clone, but there, you know, that's no such thing really. Um, but you know, he gave us our personality. So when you let go, he actually adds to your personality. Um, and I think that's the most amazing thing you know he's I've done things I can't you know from that day that I would have said there's no way on this planet I can do that and he says yes you can he says you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you Um, but to go back to your point about um, would I have wanted to meet Jesus before yes I would have 
but I wouldn't be talking to you now. I wouldn't be able to give my testimony about, you know, that it's, it's, it's okay to be bruised and broken because God can step in and, and he can step into anyone's life in a, in a split second. And yeah, it's, we're all on different journeys and, you know, God, we're all unique, totally, totally unique. And we live in a world of comparison, which is so dangerous because um, I just know that if we keep our eyes focused on him, then our journey and our personality and everything he's created us to be, he makes that path very straight, even though you'll still have ups and downs and that and those ups and downs just make you stronger you went from sort of holding god at arm's length to a certain extent then to having this amazing revelation of his love and then you became a lay minister in the anglican church <laughs> tell me about that journey well I, I think i'm quite a rebellious lay minister i'm afraid <laughs> um that was rather amazing because i didn't i i actually after um a couple of days after I met Jesus in the kitchen, I decided I wanted to do um, a Bible, wanted to go to Bible college. And I did a, a three-year um, biblical certificate with the Master's College in South California. And um, my poor husband couldn't work that one out at all. But um, So when I came to Australia and they found out that I had this um, diploma in biblical studies, they said, well, why don't you become a lay minister? I said, no, 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 no. That, that's not, that's not good. And uh, it was amazing. It just opened up into something very, very unique. We have a very quirky uh, community where we live. And then we had a, a little church that no one used to go to. So my husband and I sort of adopted that. And um, we Originally, there were three people over 90 going there, and then we turned it around to about 45 people, all different, all different denominations. And, um, and it's just amazing what God's doing at the moment here. Uh, just, and I love it. I just, you know, I, I don't like dragging people into a building. I just really feel that church should be out in the marketplace um, and that's my love is, is going out to, you know, just being outside and just allowing people freedom to meet Jesus, but not necessarily always in the building. You talk in the book about experiencing a certain degree of spiritual warfare. Mm. Can you tell me a bit about how you've come across those sorts of spiritual um, manifestations? Yeah, I... I I, I learned a big lesson when I started giving my testimony, um, which was been about five years ago, actually. Um, I started going to a, a school on the Gold Coast and giving my testimony week after week. So the first week, <laughs> which was bizarre, I was there for three or four hours. I came back to the farm and one of my dogs suddenly became very, very ill, so ill that he had to be put down the following day. And I didn't put two and two together at all until the following week I went back to the school to give my testimony and I came back and one of our horses was 
very, very ill and on three legs and the vet had been called. And I thought, well, that's really strange. Every time I come back from giving my testimony, it's like one of our animals has been attacked. And I discussed a little bit with Kate, who's a very good friend of mine. And she said, oh, you've got to protect yourself. And she talked about all this stuff. And I was like, oh, that sounds like something out of a science fiction movie. Then the following Wednesday, with the third Wednesday, I went and I came back and this really flipped me out big time. My other Italian greyhound only had two. I already lost one two weeks earlier, was having a fit and foaming and it looked like she was, it looked like she, she was going to die. So I just drove her as fast as I could. I don't know how I didn't have an accident to the vet's. They were like bemused. They were said, what on earth is going on? I said, I have no idea. And then they said, look, she won't survive. And I'm like, no. And I was screaming at God saying, I'm giving my testimony. I'm trying to help. And what's going on? I don't understand. And it actually, the poor little, poor little girl, she, she was in intensive care for about three or four days. And they said, look, they couldn't find out what was wrong with her, whether it was a snake or they didn't think it was, and it was meningitis, then it was... Anyway, so we had to pay an awful lot of money to keep her alive and then had everybody praying for her. And she came out the other end, which was an absolute miracle. But it was then I realized that this was serious spiritual warfare. And I, I've learned every time I go and give my testimony how to protect myself and, you know... I, you know, we say as Christians, we're not in a playground, we're in a battleground. And I know now that, you know, we, we live in a three-dimensional world, but it's not, it's four-dimensional. And that the devil and his side bods are very, very real. Um, and I've experienced, you know, sometimes I go to, and I forget, and then I, I arrive and, to a conference and I can't speak, I've lost my voice. So I think I, I've, I've become every morning before I get out of bed, I put on the armor of God. I pray a protection prayer over myself and the farm and the animals. And because I've, I've seen, I've, yeah, I've seen amazing things and, you know, he's very real, very real. I don't have any advice for other young Christians who are wanting the sort of adventures and uh, the exciting kind of life that you've had, but are also wanting to follow Jesus. I would say, you know, he, he, he likes risk takers. He wants young people on, and older people to be bold and courageous. Do you know, I, I would say that the main thing is to keep your eyes focused on him and pray into every single detail because if you do then he actually allows he keeps that road your road straight um and i i had this dream a god dream once which i think would help a lot of people um especially in the world of comparison and being competitive is that i was in in this dream i was running a race and everyone was overtaking me and i was getting so so upset that I was watching everybody else. My legs were getting heavier and I could see the finish line. And I was, and I realized I was coming in last and I crossed the line. And this dream was so real to me. I crossed the line 
And this little guy comes running up to me and he's jumping up and down and he said, you've won, you've won. And he put this medal around my neck and I said, listen, mate, you're watching the wrong race. I'm just coming last. He said, no, you didn't. And then I woke up and the next morning I'm sitting there, I'm praying to God. I said, I know that was a God dream. I don't understand it. And he said, look, we're all in a race, every single one of us. He said, focus on me and the finish line. Don't worry about other people and what they do and their ministries and their projects and their competitions and their sports and their jobs. Love them, be compassionate and just, you know, relate to them, but keep your eyes focused on me. And he said, sometimes I'll put you in a lay-by and you'll have to watch everybody go past. But in that lay-by, I'm shaping and molding you. And when you're ready, I'll put you back on the racetrack. And then you carry on keeping your eyes focused on me. And that's what I would say to people. If you want to jump, you know, if you want to whatever, do whatever sport you want, just pray into it, but allow God to lead you. And above everything, just put him first and follow him. And I think it's this thing about I have to surrender every day to him, every day, because it's so easy to get, sucked back into the, the world values and principles. Um, when you hand everything over to him, you know that you're protected during that day and that everybody you meet and everything that happens comes from him. So my main thing is just, you know, let go and let God. And, you know, he puts the passion for you to do your sports or your job in your heart and, you know, don't restrict God. Don't put God into a box because he doesn't have a box. And he, I don't think he wants us to have boxes. Um, I think we need to learn to use more than the 10% of our brain that we have. And, and I think you can do that if you focus on him. He can give you the ideas. He can give you the right way to go every day. Um, and that to me is amazing. So it's learning... My main thing is really learning to listen to what God is saying to you. And we're not great at listening. So it's spending that time just in silence a little bit every day and saying, God, what do you want to tell me? And in terms of the ways that God's blessed you in your life. So, you know, you, you seem to be a woman with lots of um, blessings in terms of financial provision and skills and opportunities. You know, you travel the world, you've met interesting people. In what ways has God been speaking to you about passing on some of those blessings? Um, for example, when I started writing my book, Racing on Empty, halfway through the book, I realized that um, it's not only about, I hope that people would come to the Lord through what happened to me, but also like, I would want all the royalties to go to the Sozo Foundation, which is a charity um, in South Africa. So I, in everything we do, both myself and Jeff, um, for example, we live on the most amazing property. We have two farms side by side. We have a cattle farm and the horses. Um, we're, we treat this as God's kingdom. So we open up our doors to everybody it's it's just just so amazing 
who comes through to us that we say that every single person that comes onto this land will encounter Jesus. We walk around it, we pray about it. So yes, we have been blessed financially. We give um, our money. We, we do, we're very strict on um, giving to churches. Um, churches where we can see that the money is actively going to help people. Um, yep, we, we know that what we have doesn't belong to us. Um, and I think we are very aware that, yeah, it, it's materialistic things. You just have to be very, very careful. We are blessed, um, but it's sharing your blessings with people and giving when God tells you. Well, it's not when God tells you. you we pray into everything. Uh, and I think that's really important. It's very easy. Money doesn't always help people it's not about always giving money to people you know listening to people or just sharing dinner together um it's i think it's having that connection with the holy spirit and allowing him to show you how you should share and give and i think that's really important mm. you strike me as the kind of woman who'll be windsurfing when she's 90 <laughs> and a new hobby or learning a new language at a hundred the next five years Iona oh good question um I think we've all been put on hold at the moment so I'm not really sure what the next five years is going to but I, I see every day as an adventure so I don't want, I always feel like I have to, I'm a very A-driven personality. I need to be out there doing stuff. But, um, but I have to admit that the one thing that I'm absolutely loving at the moment is spending time, I suppose you'd call it mindfulness, mindfulness, Christian meditation, just sitting at God's feet and just listening um and that's just been amazing i think it for me this has been wow um i'm riding in the morning so i ride a couple of horses in the morning we have 10 horses here so we've just started breeding again which is nice um and i'm big into my exercise if i don't exercise um i do circuit training and weight training if i don't exercise i think i'd go a bit crazy but and then I'm looking at book number two, um, so that's interesting. But that's all to do with mindfulness, which comes out of my speed skiing and how important thoughts are in our world. So I think I'll always be very active in, in, in horse riding and um, weight, weight training and stuff like that. But at the moment, my, my um, passion is just learning to listen, to listen to the Holy Spirit, to listen to God, to spend half an hour to an hour on top of everything else, just to be sitting at Jesus's feet and allowing, we're very good at asking and for stuff and, we're, and, and, and reading and reading scripture is like really important. Yes. And do that every day. But I'm absolutely loving the time of just being still with Jesus and 
especially with what's happening in the world today, you know, he wants us all to just refocus. So, um, you know, and I asked the question why he doesn't always tell you, but he is shaking the world upside down at the moment. But um, I think there are a lot of people coming to Jesus at the moment because of this, but which is so amazing. But yeah, what's going to happen in the next, to five years I don't know I'm quite excited I actually feel I'm in one of those laybys moments but I'm enjoying the time in the layby because I'm just sitting in silence and and listening and yeah I think that's um, it's special times for me at the moment well Iona it's been really great speaking to you today thank you for joining me on the show to share your fascinating story thank you Megan thank you I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today But join us next week, same time, same place. See you then.